We've been very fortunate to have Stephen Page preach as well as Pastor Billy. Uh, My name is Stephen. I am one of the pastors here. And this morning we are starting, as uh, Dr. Sayer already told us, we are starting a brand new series in the book of Acts. If you have your Bible, I want to just invite you to go ahead and find your way to Acts. Uh, If you're looking through that, you're going to be in the New Testament. You want to get to the Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you're going to find Acts. If you make it to Romans or Corinthians, you've gone too far. One of the values we have here in our church is to preach through whole books of the Bible. Now, this is a large commitment and investment, not just on my part, but on all of our parts as we are seeking to be faithful to God's word. On one hand, it's a large investment just because of the length of time this is going to take. Acts is the second longest book in the New Testament And some of you now are going to be thinking, well, wait a second, what's the longest? And so just so you're not thinking about that the rest of the message, Luke is the longest. But Acts is a long series. We're not going to do this in just five messages like we did for the book of Ruth. We're going to be in Acts for a long time. So this is a big investment. On the other hand, this is a large commitment because going through the Bible verse by verse is hard. Invariably, we're going to come to passages we would rather avoid. There will be passages that are difficult to understand, passages we'd rather not preach because they are either socially unacceptable or awkward for us to talk about, passages that are hard to apply because they hit us right here where it's personal. And when we come to those passages, Pastor Billy is going to do a wonderful job. No, but in all seriousness, there's a a commitment to going through verse by verse through the Bible where it might be a lot easier to think, you know what, I don't really know much about that topic. Let me just pick some of the ones I already know a lot about. Let me pick some of the ones that I know people want to hear, some of the highlight passages. But we're not going to do that. We're not going to do something that just takes five weeks, even though people say, well, attention spans right now aren't where they used to be. People aren't going to be able to stay with you in a series that's going to take a long time. And yet we're going to go against it. So so why, if this is a hard and large commitment, if this is a large investment, why are we going to do this? Why not just pick the topics that we already want to hear about? Well, because we believe in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In that passage, there's so many words of, of, that give that total idea. All of Scripture, all of it is profitable for teaching. All of it is profitable for reproof. All of it is profitable for correction. All of it for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every 
good work. What this means is that God had a purpose for the word he has given us. He had a reason for the way he chose to reveal himself. And the way he chose to do that was through his word. As he enabled human authors to write 66 different books as the Holy Spirit carried them along, as we learn in 2 Peter, as the Holy Spirit directed them to write what they did. It's all one story, and yet each of these 66 books has a unique purpose, a unique focus. These human authors intentionally chose what to say, how to say it, and where to to say it. And so our privilege and responsibilities as ones who have received this precious word is to seek to understand the author's God-ordained purpose and to apply the author's intended response. And it's our belief that our best chance of doing that is just going to be to go through books of the Bible so that we can see the context, we can see the bigger argument, we can see how this author's book and purpose fits within the grander picture. So this morning, to begin our series, we're going to be doing an overview of Acts. But before we start, I want us to go before God once again and take this moment seriously. This is going to be a big part of the story of our church. And we think that God had a purpose for this, that he wants to produce a change in us. And and so I believe it's appropriate for us right now, together to go before God in prayer and dedicate this series to him, asking that he would produce the transformation, that he would produce the results he would have happen in our lives. So won't you pray with me? God, as we come to this moment and we prepare to start a new series, there is so many ways in which we can look at new things and we can look with excitement at the start of something new, but often there is also a level of apprehension that we want to start off well, that we want to understand. And God, we feel that in so many different ways, if it's, whether it's starting a new uh, year of school, going to college, maybe starting a new job, uh, the welcoming a child into your family, all of these new things that are exciting, but then also apprehension. And so Lord, right now, we pray that you would bless the study of your word We believe that you had a purpose in revealing yourself and revealing truth through the book of Acts. Lord, we pray that you would cause the transformation that Acts is meant to produce to happen in our lives. Lord, we we pray that you would accomplish the purpose of this book in our individual lives and in the life, life of our church. Lord, Acts is so applicable to us. Like the apostles, you have given us a mission and purpose. But Lord, so often we feel insecure, inadequate, and ineffective to accomplish that mission. We confess that often we do not act because we are either paralyzed by fear or distracted by lesser pursuits or even indifferent to your call. And so Lord, we pray right now that you would use this book to not only comfort us by revealing the power of your spirit as your word is proclaimed, but also to push us forward towards action. Father, we dedicate this series to you and pray that you would use it in the life of our church in the same way your spirit and word were working in Acts. 
We pray when all is said and done, that it might be said here just as it was said in Acts, that the word of God spread and multiplied, that the church was strengthened in the faith and growing daily, and that the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. Father, this is our prayer to you as we seek to begin this series and be faithful to your word. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. On your handout, we're going to be doing an overview, so a little different from our regular messages. Starting next week, we're actually going to go right back to the beginning of Acts, and we're just going to be going through verse by verse. But for right now, we want to offer a foundation that gives us the overview of the book so that we can understand, okay, how does this work? What's Luke's argument? What is he trying to convince the original readers of? What is the foundation that we are meant to stand on? What's the structure? So we're going to be answering various questions in your handout that you can see. The first question is, what kind of book is Acts? Why should we be studying this book? Now, some of you know the genre of Acts is a historical narrative. This is a book of history. So one reason to study it is because it's a historical book. The book of Acts, along with the Gospels, serves as a hinge that connects the Old and New Testaments. We know that Acts goes together with the Gospels because of how Acts starts. Look at Acts 1, verse 1. This is what it says. In the first book, O Theophilus... I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Well, what first book are we talking about? What, what first book is the author referring to? It's referring to the Gospel of Luke. If you look back to the beginning of Luke, this is what it says in Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. We learn from church history that the author of both Luke and Acts is none other than Paul's companion, Luke. At the end of Colossians, we, we get a little bit more detail about Luke in, in that Paul says, Luke, the physician, Dr. Luke. Also, in the, at the end of Colossians, uh, we, when we went through Colossians earlier, earlier this year, Paul lists all of his companions, and he says, he lists a few of them, and he says, these are the only people of the circumcision. These are all, the only Jews among me. And then later lists Luke. Luke's a Gentile. But more than just being a doctor, Luke is a historian. For some time past, as it says in Luke here, he has been compiling, he has been studying, he has been putting together all of these details. When you consider both the book of Luke and Acts, we are looking at 60 years of history. Beginning with the birth of Christ all the way until Paul is in prison in Rome. It's 60 years of history. 
So what we are going to see here, though, is that this history serves not only, though, as a hinge between the Old Testament to the New Testament, even within the New Testament, the book of Acts is a bridge that takes us from the content of the Gospels to the Epistles. If we were to finish the Gospels that tell us all of the beginning of what Christ did and and his ministry, and then were to jump straight into the rest of the New Testament, we'd have some questions. Imagine finishing the Gospel of John where you see Jesus walking on the beach with his disciples. He's challenging Peter. He tells Peter, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And the next thing we read is Romans 1.1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That would confuse us. Who's Paul? How's Paul an apostle? What's going on? What happened to the mission? What are the people doing? The last thing we saw was a bunch of disciples hiding in fear in a room. What's happening now? Acts helps us to bridge the gap. It helps us to understand what's happening here. But this isn't just a history book. See, Acts helps us make these connections, and what, but what we need to understand that while Acts is a historical book, there's a danger for us in thinking of Acts just as history. The temptation is that we will wrongly think that the only purpose is the transfer of information. Here's some interesting facts and dates that are going to help us to get from point A to point B. That's not the focus and point of Acts. To go through Acts like that would be a disservice to the purpose of Acts. See, Acts is a history, but it's a purposefully selected history. Luke has compiled and selected the content of this book for a specific purpose. Acts is not only a historical book, it's a deeply theological book. We just sang a song talking about how Christ is a, the true and better. All of these promises that were made in the Old Testament that now we see in Acts are fulfilled. All of these ideas and promises that we were been waiting and saying, how is this going to work? And even Christ in the Gospels, he explains, this is what I'm doing. But in Acts, we finally get to see it play out. We see that there is this theological focus. God's plan of establishing Christ's kingdom is being accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke shows us the practical ways in which the early church wrestled and considered difficult theological issues. His purposefully selected history offers us immense insight. But again, when we think of a book as historical and theological, there's still a temptation to think of this just as an informative book, and it's not. When we read through Acts, we see that it is not only meant to inform the readers, it's also meant to transform the readers. In a little bit, we're going to look a little more at the message and content of the book, but we need to understand that at no point should we leave after interacting with the truth of Acts and think, well, I'm, I'm glad to have a little more information. No, that information is always meant to lead to transformation. 
More than just history, Acts is a book of theology, but more than just information, Acts is meant to lead to transformation. So then what is the transforming theological and historical truth that we find in Acts? It's this, and this is our big idea for the book. No obstacle overcomes the Father's plan in establishing Christ's kingdom for the Spirit empowers Christians to proclaim Christ. Over and over again in this book, we are going to see all of these obstacles. And what the truth that we see is that no obstacle overcomes the Father's plan in establishing Christ's kingdom. Why? Because the Spirit empowers Christians to proclaim Christ. We're going to see the, come to this realization of this truth throughout the entire book. But make no mistake, there's way more truth in Acts than just this simple phrase. But ultimately, this is the truth we keep coming back to. What's surprising when we read Acts is how encouraging it is. If you were just to look and make a list of the problems that happen in Acts, even problems that on a human level are never resolved you would not think that it was a book meant to encourage. We're going to talk about being imprisoned, people stoned to death, lying in the church, neglected widows, shipwrecks, people bit by snakes. That's the worst part for me. Executed. All of these things, problem after problem after problem, that's the content of a book that's meant to encourage us? Yes. Because what we're going to see with all these obstacles is that we have a greater God because no obstacle overcomes the Father's plan. We've seen this big idea of the book, so now let's, let's take a closer look at some of the content in Acts. Look again with me at chapter 1. Acts begins with Jesus calling his disciples to action. He is commissioning them with a purpose. These are his last moments with his disciples. One of the interesting things that we're going to look at next week is how much the ascension matters to Luke. You might not have known this. I didn't remember this or realize this. Luke is the only author that deals with the ascension when we're looking at the Gospels and Acts. Matthew doesn't talk about the ascension. Mark doesn't. John doesn't. Luke does, both at the end of the Gospel of Luke, and then he begins Acts with it. Why? Because it's demonstrating the reign and authority of the king who is now in the throne room of heaven. But this is what he tells the disciples right before he looks. Look at verse 8 and not, look at verse 8. <clears throat> but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the great call of the book of Acts. This is the mission statement that not only informs the book of Acts, it also gives us the structure of Acts. 
One of the fascinating elements that Luke has decided to structure his book is that there is a geographical sequence in the book. We start in the first seven chapters looking at Jerusalem. In chapters 8 through 12, we expand to a greater region looking at how the Jews in that region of Judea and Samaria come to know Christ. Then from chapters 13 through 28, we expand once again as we see the gospel going to the ends of the earth. We'll look at that progression. That's what we see in verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. This is the structure we're going to be following as we go through Acts, as we continue to see the progressive nature of the mission. But right now, it all stems from this call to be witnesses. Over and over again, the mission that is going to keep on being revealed is how these people, more than establishing their own kingdom, more than seeking their own comfort, they answer this call. One of the elements that we find in Acts that demonstrates how much this call is important is that one of the things we see is that there are 10 different large speeches that Luke gives us. Now, if, I just want you to think, if you were to try to write a history that's going to encompass 30 years of, of church history, would 30% of that book just be the speeches or certain one-time messages that were heard? Probably not. If you were just to do a history of information, your focus wouldn't be just on the messages that were preached. But if your focus is to reveal how Christ was witnessed, you would do that. We have three different messages that the Apostle Peter preaches. We go on to hear a message from Stephen, the first martyr. The rest of the book gives us six different messages from the Apostle Paul. All of these messages, though, witness Christ, the resurrected King. They preach with boldness. They understood their call. They understood their purpose. Listen to some of the bold words that, we, that are said. We're not going to look at all of them. We're going to see this every week as we go through the book. But just, I just want you to get a glimpse of how these first apostles understood the call of Acts 1, verse 8. Look at Acts 2, 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And look at the boldness here. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter's boldness doesn't diminish with time. In chapter 3, look what he says when he says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. 
And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. Make it even more significant. In chapter 4, Peter and John are before the Jewish leaders, the very ones who were responsible for orchestrating Christ's crucifixion, and they still don't back down. This is what they say to those rulers, rulers of the people and elders. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders, which has become the cornerstone. This pattern isn't one that just Peter follows. All of the proclamation that we are going to see in this book is bold proclamation. It's a bold witness. Why? Because they understood their call. They understood their purpose. But they didn't just reveal mankind's guilt. They continually pointed to Christ as the Savior. Their goal was that in seeing our depravity, in revealing our guilt and shame, in seeing our fallen condition, that we would then turn to Christ for salvation. I read from the three sermons that Paul preached. This is what he also, or Peter preached. I, this is what Peter also said in chapter 2, verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts 3 19 and through 21. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Acts 4 12. And there is salvation in no one else, but there is, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What we see in Acts is that they understood the call of Acts 1, verse 8. But before we continue, I, I want to ask this question. Is this a call and purpose just for the apostles? If this is just a history book, then we can just say, yeah, this is just for them. We don't need to think about this. This is just telling us how the apostles followed the call, how the apostles fulfilled their purpose. This is not something we need to worry about if it was just a historical book, but it's not. See, this is a call for all of us. This is a purpose that all of us are meant to accomplish. Christ calls all of his followers and gives them all the missional purpose that we all are to be his witnesses. The only reason we are gathered here this morning is because there is an unbroken line from us that traces all the way back to Christ and the apostles. 
Because those apostles saw the mission that Christ gave them. They understood it to be their call. They understood it to be their purpose. And therefore, all subsequent believers understood their call as well and continued that so that there is an unbroken line between us to the apostles to Christ. If it comes to us now and we think, this isn't my call, this isn't my purpose, then we are stopping what we are meant to be doing. Let's just be honest and say that this call is not easy. There will be immense challenges and we will face many problems See, after receiving the call from Christ, uh, the apostles return to Jerusalem and wait. This wasn't them rejecting Christ's call because back in Acts 1-4, Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem. Uh, before we move on, I want us to think about what it must have been like for these disciples as they were waiting in this room. They're going through a transition right now, and it's not easy. Christ is saying, look, the work I began, I want you to continue. How do you think they felt when they, experienced, when they heard that mission? What do you think was going through their minds as they were considering that being their call? I think in many ways, if they were doing an internal inspection, they're going to be thinking about their past record. Think about what's happened so far for the disciples. What's their track record when Christ has given them a challenge in the Gospels? Not great. And if they're thinking about what last happened, they're thinking about just a little over a month before when Christ arrived at his greatest moment of trial and they ran away. They abandoned him. If I'm one of the disciples and I'm hearing that Jesus is saying, I've got an incredible mission and it's a big mission. I want you to be my witness across the world. And they're looking at their own lives and they're thinking, there's no way. There's insecurities. They feel ineffective, inadequate for the task that is before them. And you know what? They're right. They aren't adequate for this task. Luke is going to tell us two times in both chapter 2 and chapter 4 where people are looking at these guys and saying, wait, aren't these just a bunch of Galileans? Are, the, what the Jewish leaders are going to say is literally, these are common, uneducated men. They're not up to this task. They can't do this. If, as they look at what they've done in the past, they should feel insecure. I, I can't do this. I've failed Christ, my Savior, over and over and over again. But not only if they do an internal investigation are they going to feel insecure, as they consider what's going on outside. What has Christ been doing for the last three years? He's been proclaiming his kingdom. He's been his own witness. What was the response? Yeah, there were times where crowds seemed okay with it. There were times where there were 5,000 people looking for something to eat. But in the end, what kind of crowd was surrounding Jesus? In the end, it was a crowd calling for his crucifixion. These disciples are now thinking, wait a second, Jesus. You want me to be your witness 
When you were your own witness, they chose to kill you. Now you expect us to do that without you? I think the reason we need to consider where the disciples are at and the challenges that they're going to face, because you need to understand that where we're going to go is that this book is going to show us many challenges. I said earlier that the structure of the book kind of goes through this progression where we go to Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, and finally to the end of the earth. Each one of those sections ends, humanly speaking, worse than where it started. Right here in chapter 1, think of where the, the, the disciples started. They started with Jesus alive and with them. They end in a room in Jerusalem trying to replace one of their own because one of their own was a traitor and turned against Christ. That doesn't look better. The next section, we see Peter preaching to the crowds, a multitude of people responding and putting their faith in Jesus. But it ends with another crowd surrounding the stoned Stephen at the feet of Saul. Doesn't seem better. The next section, as it goes to Judea and Samaria, we see that there is persecution, persecution of Jewish leaders who really didn't have that much authority. We'll see even later in, in Acts where they don't have the authority to kill people, and we saw that in the Gospels. And, but so, yeah, it's bad that Saul is persecuting, but that's causing people to spread out and preach the Gospel. But it ends with persecution from the king of the land as Herod kills the apostle James. The next section starts with Paul and Barnabas going out on a missionary journey. They are freely traveling the entire world proclaiming Christ and ends with Paul chained in prison waiting to make an appeal to the emperor of the world. Man, where's the encouragement and comfort? Every section ends worse than where it started. I want us to understand this, the challenge and problems we're facing because that's going to help us see the transformational intent. Put yourself in the place of the first readers. We just thought through the apostles and what they're thinking through. But I think what Luke is showing us is helping give an encouragement to the people that are first receiving this book. Because the first readers are also going to go through a transition. The transition for the apostles was that the work of Christ is now being transitioned to be a work that the apostles are going to do. What's the transition for the first readers of this book? Well, when this book is written, it's some people say it was in the 60s or 70s. There's some different debate. But, but regardless of what time period it was specifically, that means that at that time, the apostles are near the end of their ministry. Many of them have either been exiled, executed, or imprisoned. The people, the first readers, would have had a direct connection to the apostles or possibly indirect, but not very far removed. Your first readers, many of them, were present for these events. Your first readers might have seen Paul preach at, in Ephesus. Your first readers, maybe they weren't directly heard from an apostle, but maybe their pastor 
was discipled by the Apostle James. Maybe they're in the church of Titus or Timothy. For this whole time, they've understood that there is this mission, but there's a certain level of comfort of knowing, well, okay, this is hard, but at least we still have those guys who literally walked with Jesus or that guy that literally saw Jesus on the road and and Jesus revealed himself. At least we have those. First readers aren't going to have that for long. And there's going to be an apprehension that says, wait a second, I'm not up for this task. I'm insecure. I'm ineffective. I I can't do this. I'm not up for this task. Wait a second. Do you I'm looking at the type of, of trials externally we're facing. I can't do this. See, this is, this is an element that we need to acknowledge that that's where challenges and problems face us. And, and, and so I, I want to ask you right now to do a self-evaluation. If you agree that the call of Acts 1 verse 8 is not a call just for the apostles, but it is a call for every believer, meaning it is a call for you and for me, how are you doing? Are you accomplishing that call? Are you looking at this and and considering you can't do this? I know there are so many times for me where where I look at this and and, and I'm just like, I I can't. I look at this and and I'm going to be honest, I feel completely insecure, ineffective, and inadequate. Worse, sometimes I even feel indifferent. I don't care that Christ has called me to proclaim his kingdom. I'm too busy building my own. When I do an external inspection, I often feel intimidated or discouraged. I look at the scope of the mission. I look at the condition of our culture. I look at the fruit of my labors, and I think there's no way. This is intimidating. This is hard. We feel insecure. We do not feel up to the task. Is that where you feel? Do you feel like you have accomplished faithfully the call that God has given to you in Acts 1 verse 8? Honestly, answer it for yourself because that's going to take us to the transformational intent. Let's be honest. We are not up to this task. This is beyond us. We can't do this. Just like for the apostles, just like for the first readers, just like for us, this mission is completely and totally beyond us. But there is a comfort for us because Christ has promised a power that is beyond what we could imagine. The transformational intent for us is to take heart and take action. Because Christ has given us something greater. I'm just going to read through some of these verses. Acts 1, 4 through 5 and and, into 8. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What preceded them being able to be faithful witnesses? You first will receive power from the Holy Spirit. If we think that we are going to do this work, if we think that we are going to respond to this call without first receiving power from the Spirit, we are dead wrong because we are not up to this task. But through the Spirit and through His power we can. Acts 2.4 And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts 2.38 And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 4.31 And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to what? Speak the word of God with boldness. And if you think that I'm pulling out all of the times where we see the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm not even close. Yes, in Acts, there is a pattern of immense hardship. Yes, there are challenges and problems. And yes, those challenges and problems get bigger as the book goes on. But the immensity of the problems only serves to reveal how much greater and more powerful our God is. What we will see over and over and over is that the end result of these problems is that God's plan is never thwarted. Earlier I told you how each section seems to end worse than where it started, but that's only on the human level. For God, those sections end exactly where they are meant to. Because what we see throughout is that God's plan is still accomplished. Let me just read a few of the summary statements from Acts. Acts 6-7, And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts 8, 4 through 5. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the, God, preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Acts 9, 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Acts 12, 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 16, 5. So the church... Churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Acts 19.20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Acts 28.30-31, the way the book ends with Paul in prison. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, all boldness and without hindrance. I'm sorry, I think that that last word, go back one slide, that last word without hindrance is a little confusing. Where's Paul? Paul is in prison. That seems like a hindrance to me. But it's not a hindrance for God. What we are going to see over and over, and I'm not expecting you to remember all of those things, that's why we're going to go through the whole book again. What we see over and over is that God's plan 
is still accomplished without hindrance, literally in prison. Do we believe that we have this power? Do we take this comfort? I'm not asking or pretending like there's no challenges or problems that you're going to face as you seek to fulfill your call and purpose. You will face challenges. You will face problems. Pastor Billy preached last week, anyone who would follow me must deny himself and daily take up his cross. In John, Jesus says, you will be hated for my name. We're going to face immense opposition. There will be immense obstacles. And if you think that you can overcome those obstacles in your own strength, you're wrong. The only purpose you will be accomplishing is the purpose of Satan and not of God's. But when we see and we trust in the comfort and power that God has given us in proclaiming the word of Christ, what we then see is even though the world would seek to hinder us, even though we would see spiritual forces that would seek to bind us, we can know that the word of God is not hindered. We can finish a book rejoicing at the victory of Christ, even though an apostle is chained in prison, the word of God is still going forward. Do you see the majesty of what, is, what God is doing? Understand this. None of these statements were made in the absence of challenges and problems. These statements were made in the midst of the problems. Why? Because no obstacle overcomes the Father's plan in establishing Christ's kingdom, for the Spirit empowers Christians to proclaim Christ. That's our mission. Our mission is to proclaim Christ. And when we are faithfully doing that, no obstacle is going to stop it. I'm not saying that there, that guarantees that every time you do that, that there will always be the results that, that oh, well, I, I faithfully proclaimed Christ, so they are guaranteed to know, come to Christ. No, there are many times where people deny Christ, just like they did when, when Jesus was preaching. But what we will see is that God's plan will continue. When we are faithful, that's our goal. The results are up to God. So are you, are we up to the task? Can we accomplish the call and purpose from Christ? Trick question. No. We can't. But he can. What does Luke say at the beginning of Acts? What he says is this. I have dealt in the first book with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Well, that's odd because he finished the book with the ascension. That seems like what all Jesus began and finished. Seems like a conclusion. Acts starts with the ascension. Seems like a conclusion. Why is he saying now all that Jesus began to do, it seems to be implying that Jesus is still doing it. He is. Acts is often called the Acts of the Apostle. That's a misnomer. It's not the Apostles. It's God's plan. It's Christ's kingdom. It's the Spirit's power. 
Christ is still the one doing it, and so we're not going to be the ones to do it. So what then is the transformational intent for us? Take heart and take action. That's going to be our our sticky statement for, for, for the book of Acts. Take heart and take action. Why can we take heart? Because over and over and over again, we will see that the obstacles that should have stopped everything won't. We will see that no obstacle overcomes the Father's plan in establishing Christ's kingdom for the Spirit empowers Christians to proclaim Christ. Take heart. Be encouraged. Don't take heart because, oh, you'll never face another, another trouble again. No, you will face trouble. That's what, not why you take heart. You take heart because your God is greater than that trouble. And then let that encouragement cause you to take action. We're not just meant to be encouraged by this. It's meant to actually produce something. It's meant to cause us to be witnesses to Christ witnesses to the resurrection, witnesses in proclaiming his kingdom in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the end of the earth. My hope is that God is going to use this series to transform our lives. The purpose of Acts can only be accomplished, though, in those who are already followers of Christ. If you have not before not already place your faith in Christ, you can't fulfill this call. You can't respond and become, you can't be his witness now because you can't respond to that call before you have responded to the call of him being your savior. This book is written to believers. And so if you're here hoping to experience some of the transformation, to experience the power that Christ promises, you can only do that if you have placed your faith in Jesus. This is why Christ came. Because in the Old Testament, at the beginning, his presence was with us, but that presence was divided, was separated because of our sin. And throughout the entire Old Testament, there is a promise that is looking forward to when Christ would dwell with his people once again. That's only possible because Christ paid the price for our sins. And because he died the death we deserve to die, because he lived the life we could never hope to live, He became our substitute, and he rose again, finishing once and for all the payment that we had to pay. So that all those who believe in him, all those who repent and believe, all those who place their faith in him as the apostle Peter preached, they have eternal life. They are transformed. They have a new identity, and they have a new mission. But for those of us here who have already placed our faith, we have already responded to that first call. We have another call. The goal is not just salvation and we're done. We have a missional purpose. We are meant to bear witness to what Christ has done. We have a call and purpose. We will face challenges and problems but we have a greater comfort and power. No obstacle overcomes the Father's plan in establishing Christ's kingdom, for the Spirit empowers Christians to proclaim Christ. Take heart, take action.